Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. This week on Spy Talk. That's former Army Intelligence Lieutenant Colonel Ron Caps, who's turned his grief and PTSD over too many wars and too many places over too many years into a new career as a writer and singer-songwriter. We'll be talking with him later about the special stresses that intelligence personnel, some under deep cover, have struggled with over the past two decades since the 911 attacks. But first, Jean Meserve is off this week moderating a panel at the Munich Security Conference, but she left behind a very timely interview with Angela Stent, a former national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia. Stent is also the author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest. So Jean asked her for a few adjectives to describe Vladimir Putin. Wiley, masked determined and manipulative masked that's fascinating explain well so i've attended 14 of these uh valdai international club meetings where uh foreign experts on russia are brought to russia and we meet with the variety of people and we meet with putin and for many of them we've had these kind of small dinners with him uh masked i mean you look at his face and he rarely betrays any emotion. It's very hard to figure out what he's feeling. I would say one of the few times when he did was the first time we ever met him in 2004, which was just after the hostage taking in Beslan in the North Caucasus in a school where in the end, uh, you know, over a hundred children and their parents and other bystanders died. And it was literally a couple of days later. And he was talking actually about the Western media um, who had, uh, you know, who had talked about, uh, you know, the what he called terrorists uh, as sort of freedom fighters. And he, you could see that he got very angry about that. Uh, but usually it's just very hard. He maintains this kind of poker, poker face. And I presume some of that is his KGB training. And we hear, hear a lot about that part of his background. But as someone who has studied him so closely, what are some of the other events or experiences that have shaped his personality, do you think? Well, I think, first of all, growing up in post-war Leningrad, born in 1952, not long after the end of World War II, um, his parents had been, you know, lived through, barely lived through the thousand-day siege of Leningrad, which the Nazis imposed. Two brothers of his had died, um, grew, growing up poor, you know, in, in a typical communal apartment where you had many families in an apartment, sort of being an indifferent student and being of shorter stat- stature. And he writes about that in the series of interviews that he did 
when he became president in the year 2000. And basically, you know, his, <laughs> the, what he learned from that was, you know, you have to fight them first before they fight you. So that, that kind of, I think, background. Um, and then that he is a judo champion. So one of the ways that he was an indifferent student, et cetera, he got out of the sort of rut he was in uh, was A, um, he had a German teacher who really liked him and taught him German and he loved the language. And as we know, he ended up being a KGB agent in East Germany, but also learning judo. It's actually a mixed martial arts, Russian version of it, but it's judo. So uh, I have in my book, Putin's World, a photo of uh, an article from the Leningrad Evening News uh, when he was 26 years old saying, this is the new judo champion uh, of Leningrad and watch, you know, this young man will go far. Well, they had no idea how far he would go. Um, and he's, he's co-authored a book on judo, which I've looked at. Um, and he certainly, um, this has been a theme in his life. And I guess judo, if you're a judo champion, you understand that even you might be, if you're weaker than your opponent physically, you can still outsmart them if you understand their weaknesses and you know how to distract them. So I think the skills, uh, you know, people talk about Russians, they talk about chess, they talk about poker, whatever. But I think for him, the judo skills have been an important influence, I think, in the way he deals with people, plus, you know, his experiences as a KGB case officer, middle level KGB case officer, uh, when he was trying to recruit assets. I've seen headlines that we are seeing in this moment, a newly aggressive Putin. Are we mm. seeing something new? I don't think this is completely new. I think um, if you go back to the Munich Security Conference 15 years ago, now in the year 2007, uh, he made a pretty fiery speech. It was the only Munich conference he ever attended where he laid out all of his grievances against the United States. So the grievance narrative that we hear today uh, has been there at least for 15 years. I think what's changed is he, has now, he now feels this is the moment for him to strike. He looks out at the United States. He looks at the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan. He looks at all of our domestic political divisions and administration that's barely able to get any of its legislation through, polarization in society. He looks at Europe. Uh, the new German government is still figuring out you know, how to deal with Russia. Uh, France is preoccupied with its own presidential election. Boris Johnson, you know, has his own particular political troubles now, but in general, Britain is dealing with Brexit. And he looks at the European continent. It's also very focused on itself. It's divided. Everyone's coping with the aftermath of the ongoing pandemic. Uh, and then, so I think he thought that this is a moment to strike. It's not as if anything happened uh, to provoke this. The last time NATO enlarged to anywhere near Russia's borders was in 2004. So the only enlargement we've had since then has been in the Balkans. So there's, there's nothing that's precipitated this, but his looking out at the world, uh, seeing Ukraine you know, move inexorably towards closer ties to the West, uh, and also realizing that uh, President Zelensky, his popularity numbers have been down before all this began. So this seemed an opportune moment to him. Does he also believe that he has more leverage now than he might have at other points in the past? I think, you know, economically, Russia has done a very good job uh, back uh, in its macroeconomic policy. He's got over $600 billion uh, of reserves. 
So even, and of course, of course paradoxically, uh, the more, the longer the crisis goes on, the higher oil prices are. And so that's very good for the Russian economy. He does have leverage in as much as a country like Germany is dependent for about 50% of its natural gas supplies from Russia. The European continent as a whole, I think it's around between 35 and 40%. So uh, that there's definitely some leverage there and we already see kind of a tightening of the, of the gas market there. Um, and I think that he's also dealing with the aftermath of four years of Trump. Now, the, you know, the Atlantic Alliance was in grave danger under President Trump. He, after all, really wanted the U.S. to leave NATO. The Biden administration, of course, has very carefully cultivated uh, and improved ties with Europe. But the Europeans themselves don't know what's going to happen in 2024, who's going to be our next president. And therefore, there's a, a mistrust of longer run U.S. intentions there. And I think Putin understands that well. And I think if one of his goals is indeed to sort of remove the United States from Europe, then I think he also sees that maybe he does have more leverage there because he knows that Europeans are divided on some of the issues that he has made the focus of this crisis. He also has spent some time recently shoring up his relationship with China. Indeed. He couldn't be doing what he's doing if he didn't have this quite strong strategic partnership with China. Now, you know, people like to talk about the asymmetries um, and the potential rivalries there, but right now, for their own reasons, China and Russia are strengthening their partnership. We saw them at the Beijing, just before the Beijing Olympics began, sign this uh, long treaty, with, which was quite specific, and the China buying into the Russian narrative that Russia's security needs need, uh, need to be um, recognized by the West that NATO shouldn't enlarge anymore. And of course, um, Russia saying that it, it supports a one China policy. And, and so I think this has been an important, it's the backdrop against which he knows that just as in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, the Chinese came to Russia's rescue economically, uh, they will do the same this time. And of course, China has a different leadership now than it did in 2014. So some people look at the prospect of tens of thousands of deaths, both Russian and Ukrainian, and have trouble figuring out why he wants to do this. What is Putin's cost-benefit analysis when it comes to Ukraine? So I think, you know, we have to be, it is true that if there were a full-scale invasion, there would be thousands of casualties. And Putin, having published this essay in July, saying that Ukrainians and Russians are one, they're brothers and sisters, to then tell young men that they've got to go in and, and kill Ukrainians. And if, you know, if they are significant casualties, this would, you know, this would something that would, would really challenge, ultimately, I think Putin's hold on power. But I think there's a lot that Russia can do short of that, including kind of making this an ongoing simmering, uh, neither peace nor war conflict, in other words, withdrawing some troops uh, after these exos current exercises with Belarus have finished, and then but never withdrawing them completely, keeping the Ukrainians guessing, grinding the Ukrainians down uh, and, and, and really challenging Western unity, which is you know, pretty hard to maintain. So I think his cost benefit analysis is if he can keep in, in a, you know, if, it, if he can keep the West responding to his agenda, which is what we've been doing since December, when we got these two treaties presented to us, 
Uh, and if you can keep grinding Ukraine down, causing uncertainty in the Ukrainian population, using hybrid means, cyber attacks, and uh, whatever else, trying to destabilize them, that, you know, that is likely in the longer run also to cast more doubt um, on the part, part certain NATO members about how far they should be supporting Ukraine. So that's one scenario where as time goes by, um, the, this kind of commitment that you see now, uh, this united Western commitment would, would, would sort of fade away. We have seen a flurry of diplomatic activity with the United States, with France, with Germany, with NATO. Do you think that the West gets Putin and that they are dealing with him the way they should for maximum maximum effect? I think the problem is that, you know, we all hoped in the 1990s after the Soviet Union collapsed that Russia would want to integrate with the West, uh, would want to not necessarily become more like us, but would accept the kind of global international system that uh, was created after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War. So it turns out, you know, you have lots of Russians who live in Europe, who live in the United States, who are part of this kind of globalized world, um, but, you know, whose political views still resemble uh, very much the, the, the ruling group in Russia. And I think what we probably fail to understand is how much Putin really wants to relitigate the end of the Cold War, wants to go back and uh, challenge, revise the, se the settlement that was there in the 1990s, challenge NATO. Well, he said they want NATO to go back to the military posture it had in 1997. And I think we probably overestimated the, the belief that you know Putin's a pragmatist and you can sit down and negotiate with him, but he clearly what we've seen in this current crisis almost for the past year is, I think the calculus for him has changed. Is he thinking about his legacy? I mean, he can stay in power till 2036 legally, uh, but he may be thinking about that. Um, and his just his determination not to let Ukraine slip out of the Russian orbit uh, and then to create really a sphere of influence. And I think we've probably uh, underestimated that. And therefore we do have to rethink how we deal with him and really probably go back to the kinds of ideas that we accepted, you know, going back to George Kennan's famous article in 1947, how you contain a power like Russia as opposed to the anticipation that you are gonna be able to engage with them. Sanctions, the end of Nord Stream 2, these are the things the West is talking about. Are these effective tools with a man like Putin? I don't think they're very effective. I mean, if you look at what happened in 2014, um, we imposed, and the, we, the United States and the Europeans imposed fairly significant financial sanctions on Russia. Um, it didn't change its policy in Ukraine. Some people argue that Russia would have taken more territory in 2014 than it did uh, in the Southeast. Maybe that's true. Maybe the sanctions deterred him. Um, but they don't seem to have modified or really come into the calculations of what Russia has been doing. And the problem with these kind of sanctions, particularly the, um, these massive sanctions that are now threatened on Russian financial institutions and Russian energy is, they affect, A, our European allies more than they affect us because they trade much more with Russia, they get energy from Russia. Um, and 
uh, and so that you know that that's a difficult calculus to make and they don't seem to have deterred russia um and i think the idea that if you sanction some of the people who are close to putin and we've already done some of that if you do more of that that a group of people is going to get together and say you know we need someone else to run russia that's not how the system works so unfortunately i don't think they're a very effective tool but really they're the only tool uh, that the U.S. and its allies feel that they have, and I'm not sure that even you know, short of a massive full-scale invasion, that you are going to get complete agreement between the U.S. and Europe on the kind of sanctions that could be imposed. So, if we haven't quite figured out how to deal with him, does it indicate a weakness in our intelligence, a failure of imagination? What is it? <laughs> You know, I think that we we in the West certainly have been distracted these past years. I mean, it's it's the pandemic now. It was all the populism. It was the Trump era. It's populism in Europe. But even before then, um, you know, I when I when I was uh, writing a book on U.S.-Russian relations, and I spoke to a senior official who'd worked in the Obama administration, they said, you know, that administration kind of wished Russia would go away. I mean, I think there's been a tendency in US administrations to, to, to look at the Russia problem and it's intractable and just to think, well, maybe if you don't deal with some of these things, it'll go away. And I think at the beginning of the Biden administration, the idea of creating a stable and predictable relationship with Russia was sort of part of that too. Let's try and have a relationship with Russia where it isn't always a problem in the Biden administration's case so we can focus on China. Um, but that, that hasn't worked. Um, I mean, because, because Russia doesn't go away. Um, but I think it's been, it's been, it's very difficult also for open societies to understand fully how to counter a, a country like, like Russia, where, you know, they're very good at all of the disinformation we know about, you know, manipulating social media, uh, using other cyber uh, tactics to cause disruptions in the West. It's just much harder to operate against that um, plus, you know, allowing uh, different people from Russia to come uh, to the West and, you know, uh, wh whose intentions may not be quite what we think they are. So I think we're, we have been playing catch up there. Is there one additional thing that we should know about Vladimir Putin? <laughs> um, he likes to surprise. Uh, I mean, that is one of the things he likes to do is and you know you might see if you do see a partial de-escalation we will probably have been surprised by that so he likes to keep people guessing the last thing he thing he wants to be is predictable you know throughout the soviet period the communist party sort of prevailed over the intelligence services this is really the first time in russian history where you have a government that is so much run by people who come from the intelligence services um, and so it's so hard to understand how things function and what's going on there because they, you know, they understand how to, <laughs> how to operate in a closed system and, and really make it very difficult for outsiders to, to figure out what's really going on. That's Angela Stent, author of Putin's World, Russia Against the West and With the Rest and many more works on the Kremlin. She's also director of the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies, and a professor of government and foreign service 
at Georgetown University. I'll be back with my interview of Ron Caps after the short break. Now back to Ron Caps. As an Army intelligence officer and later crisis scene diplomat with the State Department, Ron Caps was inserted into the middle of some of the world's worst catastrophes of the 1990s and beyond. From civil wars and genocide across Africa to the Balkans, Iraq, and Afghanistan, where he served with the 18th Airborne Corps and the Defense Intelligence Agency. He eventually reached a breaking point in Darfur, where, working as a foreign service officer, he was overcome by not being able to stop the murder and rape and genocide that surrounded him. Stricken by nightmares and facing a complete breakdown, he was medevaced home. I met him in 2010 when he was launching the Veterans Writing Project, a nonprofit organization that hosts free writing workshops and seminars for veterans and service members, as well as their adult family members. Since then, he's written a searing memoir and also begun a new career as a singer-songwriter plumbing the same issues that he and so many other intelligence, special forces, and frontline foreign service officers have felt. Ron Caps, welcome to Spy Talk. It's so great to have you here. You know, we go back a long ways. We're, we're in regular touch, usually sharing personal anecdotes on Facebook and so on. But the other day you sent me an article by the military affairs journalist Jack Murphy about the suicide of a member of a super secret military intelligence unit. As it turned out, I'd already read the deeply moving and upsetting piece, but you seem to be signaling to me that the issue of mental health in intelligence and diplomatic circles had not really been solved. And that was based on your own experience of seeing too much war, too many places before spiraling down into your own mental health crisis. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. But thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Um, I, I retired about, I don't know, 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. And my last few years in the service were um, pretty much a, of a struggle. I had gone from, in the late 90s, uh, Kosovo, Rwanda, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Darfur leading through about 10 years from just 96 the, to 06. Just the worst places. That's where the work was. And, Plus Iraq um, and Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. So, you know, the Balkans and Central Africa during the 90s were hotspots for both the intelligence community, the development community, the diplomatic corps. And um, I ended up bouncing around in those areas in the late 90s. And then after September 11th, was in Afghanistan, 2002, 2003. Iraq 2004 and Darfur 2005 and 2006. And it was that extended deployment followed extended deployment followed extended deployment. You know, these are one year or two year tours in country. And um, I wasn't taking care of myself. I wasn't getting the downtime I needed between these tours and just was not inwardly functioning very well 
And one of the things that struck me about this article was that, uh, you know, the, this soldier was, you know, working for a really high speed technical intelligence unit, also trained as a human mentor. And meaning a spy an, handler. Yes. And that technical unit was described as a hacking unit. Yeah. So, I mean, he's working two, two different fields there. And up until like, very close to his death, nobody really knew that he was struggling. You know, and it's, it's this idea that case officers are trained to compartmentalize their life. You're, you're trained to compartmentalize your identity because you have multiple identities that you have to live. Mm -hmm. And it's very hard to turn that off when you go home. Do you, do you think that intelligence now, as you know, I was a military intelligence case officer myself. Uh, you were even more than that. You trained at the CIA's Camp Peary to be a case officer. Um, so you had dual diplomatic and intelligence roles and probably they got mingled together. Uh, and plus you were a colonel in the army. Uh, so, uh, or you retired as a lieutenant colonel. So I, I guess my question is, do you think that PTSD issues are different for intelligence personnel than they are for combat soldiers? I don't know if it's different, um, but the issue for the intelligence community, particularly centered around, I mean, years ago, it centered around the, the questionnaire that you have to fill out every few years to bring your clearance up to date. And there was, there's a question that was number 21 and it says, you know, in the last seven years, and I, I can't quote it, but it, mm -hmm. it goes back seven years and it's in the last seven years, have you been treated for mental health issues? And if so, tell us when, by whom, and what was the problem? And I guess after about 2007, the Department of Defense had said, we're not asking that question the same way. If you were treated for mental health issues that related to a deployment, we don't care. Just tell us about it and everything's going to be fine. And nobody believes them. Yeah. No one, no one believes them at all. Yeah. And so, yeah. So there is always the issue of camaraderie and the ranks and combat units. You don't want to show weakness. Um, in the intelligence ranks, there's the fear of losing your security clearance. If you say I'm kind of nuts, you know, and you had a really defining incident in Duffer, which you describe so poignantly in your memoir, which is called Seriously Not All Right, Five Wars in Ten Years. You had a pistol in your mouth. You were ready to kill yourself. Was that because, uh, and I don't mean to gloss over the pain of that moment, but was that because just it was going so bad? We were doing so many things. We in the West, other allies, were doing so many things so badly that it, it just came to a breaking point for you. You had written a dissent to policy in a back channel. What was it? I don't think it was one specific thing um, for me. You know, looking back on it, this was um, 2006 that this happened. And, you know, in the, in the years since, I've had a lot of time to think about it. 
And it was really multiple deployments without taking the downtime in between, like I was saying before. But for me, the issue was I, I never felt like the work I was doing was successful enough. You know, in Darfur, the first year I was there, the government of Sudan was committing genocide. And so I lived through part of this genocide. Now, of course, I had a black passport and I could fly in and out as whatever I wanted. So I was never under threat in the same way that, that the, uh, the Darfurians were. But it was my job to kind of try and stop that fighting. And when it's your job to stop something from happening and you can't do it and you can't do it and you can't do it, you still can't do it. It goes mm -hmm. on and on and on. That's sort of, that's what broke me. And you feel is, like you'd be, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. And, and you just feel that you're part of the machinery of death. Maybe. Um, I, sur I, I surely felt like everything that I touched was, was, was a failure. And, you know, looking back on that, it's, it, I can now with some distance and um, some therapy, I understand that that's not true. You know, I had some some great successes. Um, teams I was on, my own personal activities. You know, like we we got we 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 found hostages. We we saved villages from being burned. We actually got the two sides to talk, in not in Sudan but in in Darfur, in um, uh, Kosovo in the early days of my career. And so I was really sort of blind to all of that success to all, all the things that went right because mm -hmm. i was com just completely overwhelmed by all the things that, that in my view were going terribly wrong i can certainly relate to that because i ran a very successful operation in vietnam in a very bad cause and you could get immersed in your own little successes and so you block off as much as you can the context in which you're operating. You, you were in charge of human, human intelligence operations in Afghanistan. That had to be a, I know from talking to you in the past, that was a searing experience on its own. And you can imagine after 20 years of failing war in Iraq and Afghanistan, that, that there are, hundreds if not thousands of former or even current intelligence officers and special forces troops who have had very similar experience to yours and are suffering i i i have to assume so i mean i was in afghanistan in 2002 and 2003 so early on in the war but you know, we were still feeling our way around at that point. Afghanistan was at the time a very human intensive theater. Um, the, the enemy, the people we were trying to uh, capture and kill the terrorists weren't using communications equipment that our um, defense department SIG enters were prepared to 
monitor. You know, they were, the signatures were still, you know, thinking about listening to FM radio and VHF radio. And the, these guys are working on, on burner cell phones and it took a while to catch up. But so Afghanistan was a very human intensive theater when I was there. And that included what was called the, the BCP, the Bagram Collection Point, which was an interrogation center. And I guess I'd been, the, the, the interrogators fell under my, uh, my shop, the J, J2X human shop. Um, and, and just to be clear here, we're not talking about CIA black sites. No, 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 no. This was, this was, yeah. Waterboarding and so on was implied. No, no, this was a uh, military collection point. Uh, the downstairs area of this, this converted aircraft hangar was uh, run by military police, uh, security people, uh, and the upstairs was the uh, military intelligence interrogators. And, you know, within about, within a period of just a few weeks, we had two uh, detainees die in custody, both of which were determined to be uh, homicide. And um, mm. that, I think that sort of set me on a very bad downward spiral. And I, I, I just didn't recover from yeah. that. Um, we first met face-to-face, -face, I think, when I was at the Washington Post, and you gave me a call, and we met in the cafeteria, and you wanted to tell me about the Veterans Writing Project that you were started. In fact, you recruited me to the board, which I was just honored to do. Um, and the idea behind that is you, I think a phrase you use, you're going to veterans and, and of intelligence and military uh, uh, units should try to write themselves home. W-R-I-T-E. Um, that writing and pouring it out is a really effective way of self-therapy. That was really a distinguished operation. And you began writing yourself. And your memoir, I'll repeat the name of it again, Seriously Not All Right, Five Wars in Ten Years, was really searing. Was it a searing experience to write it? In, in, in many ways, yes. I started writing what became chapters of that book while I was still in Kosovo. After the bombing campaign and after the Serbs had uh, pulled out, we went back in, and I had been there already for six or seven months, we went back in and um, we were living in the, uh, the, the capital, Pristina. And so I was sitting at a desk in, in, a, in a little room that was, that was my bedroom. And I just started typing. And um, I remember typing the words yellow, their skin was yellow and describing a, a specific event where we had gone to witness the burial of some civilians who were murdered by Serbian special police, mm. um, a special uh, paramilitary unit. And they, these guys were firing mortars and heavy machine guns at civilians. And we went to witness that and sort of stand as a, a kind of guard because we knew the Serbs wouldn't shoot at us, but we hoped they wouldn't anyway. But um, I spent 
the rest of my career writing that book and then the first few years afterwards because one i really wanted to get those stories down on paper or digits because all of the reports that i was writing i mean i, I was a political officer for the state department or i was a, a military intelligence human officer for dia when 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 they called me and you know my job is to go look at things and write down you know, describe what happens to an audience back in Washington. So I was writing these stories that were kind of crisp and clean reports of me really messy, horrible acts of cruelty. And we didn't mention people's names and these people who were dying, I think, I, I really felt like their stories needed to be told. So I started just writing them down. This is what I saw. This is what happened to me while I was here watching this and trying to stop this. And um, it helped. It, it did because therapy wasn't helping me. Therapy wasn't helping me. Therapy and medication wasn't helping me. Therapy, medications, whiskey wasn't helping me. Uh, different combinations of all of that. But what I found out was that if I could get that story out of the back of my head and get it down on paper, then I control it. And I, I literally took a ripped a piece of paper out of my notebook and wrote, either you control the story or the story controls you. Mm -hmm. Wise words. Thanks. And I, I, that's what I used as my sort of my, my uh, the beacon for me, because I needed to get those stories out because once it's out, once it's on paper, then you can, you, you can edit the story. You can come to control it. But once, as long as it's still in your head, it's in control of you. If you were running a psychological, uh, if you were a psychological health chief officer at CIA or military intelligence or the VA, uh, what would you do tomorrow to start? Um, I would expand a lot of the programs that the VA is currently trying out. They're testing out um, alternative therapies. They're testing out um different types of programs that include the arts art music dance yoga and literature one of the real issues is that you someone can go to college and get a degree in music and then go to graduate school and get a degree in music therapy you can do that with art you can do that with dance you can do that with theater but you can't in the united states you can't do that with with writing there's no such thing as a professional writing therapist a board certified writing therapist. Lots of psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers use writing in their practice as a way mm -hmm. of getting their patients, their clients uh, to get the story out on paper. But there's no professional organization to oversee uh, that type of work. So I would expand that kind of work. And I would really expand uh, more alternative programs like getting people into nature, getting people out into the world. Um, there's a lot of new science coming out about the value and importance of just being out in nature. Speaking of music, you found music uh, returning to your musical roots, I should say, because you, you made your way through college singing and bars and nightclubs yeah. and so on. Um, you return to music as, a, as another uh, avenue of therapy. Yeah, I did. Um, I... I, I, I grew up in Virginia Beach. You know, my dad was in the Navy and he saw the world and I saw Virginia Beach, which I just thought was manifestly unjust. <laughs> probably, you know, his dad was in the Army. 
he was in the Navy. So it, it sort of skips a generation. I, that's why I ended up in the Army, I guess. But uh, yeah, I paid my way through college playing guitar and singing in bars. I, I was that guy standing in the corner belting out uh, Beatles and John Prine songs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for, for not a lot of money, but just enough to pay tuition. Well, and then just a couple of years ago, I sort of picked up the guitars again and started playing. And um, 2020, I put out uh, a five song EP really focused on the, the narratives in the songs are really focused on the return to America, to the, the, the return home of soldiers and um, these are fictions. They're they're not autobiographical or memoir, but there's well, they're poems. There's, yeah, there's enough of me in there. I'm I'm sure, but there's a lot of you in there, and a lot of them deal with uh, war and its aftermath and the psychological pains. And speaking of which, uh, I think we're going to leave it. We're going to go out with one of your most moving songs, in which you talk about or sing about coming home with a smell of war on you. And it has that gut punch line. You're sitting with your daughter at the breakfast table or whatever, and she turns to you and she says, Daddy, did you win the war this time? It's such a moving, poignant and lovely song. And we'll go out with that. Thank you, Ron Caps, for coming on the Spy Talk podcast. It's, it's just great that we're able to share this time together. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hope we can do it again sometime. And you come home With the smell of war still on your clothes And the airport's a freak show And it's hard to fake a smile You're wearing your past In the ribbons there on your chest But they can smell the future on your breath It's just a shot to calm your nerves And your little girl She sits down for supper time Is that the last time you'll have to go? Daddy, did you win the war this time? That's former Army Intelligence Officer and Diplomat Ron Caps. And that's it for another edition of Spy Talk. Thanks so much for joining us. Now, make sure you don't miss an episode by finding that subscribe button on this podcast page and signing up. I also invite you to take a look at our Spy Talk newsletter over at Substack, where we regularly publish exclusives on intelligence news and analysis. You can also find me on Twitter at SpyTalker. Gene Meserve is there, too, at, well, Gene Meserve. Until next week, I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks again. 
For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.